0: Hi, this is Jason. Stacey from Bourbon House. And you're listening to The Hook Rocks with Jay Scott.
1: Grandpa Wilbur was the first to be saved. He traveled the country playing on the church stage. They passed the hat. That was all he was paid. He was a dying brief long before his day.
2: everyone welcome back it's the hook rocks the ultimate rock community podcast i of course am jay scott your host taking you along the way thanks for tuning in i always appreciate it we are part of the pantheon podcast network a great network of music related podcasts a lot of different stuff on that platform something for everyone to enjoy i've had quite a few guests that are fellow pantheon podcast hosts um i always mention them at the beginning of every episode like Martin Popoff, the rock historian, Mistress Carrie, the legendary DJ out in Boston, Tom and Zeus from the number one rated Kiss podcast. Shout out loudcast. Aaron and Chris from Decibel Geek and Vinny Apathy and Carmen Peace on the hanging and banging podcast. Also Mac out in London on the, uh, ugly American werewolf and london podcast which is a great podcast too as well so check out all those check out pantheon ponds and also some social media platforms like instagram twitter and facebook at pantheon pods and their website pantheonpodcast.com check out the hook rocks wherever you do podcasts apple spotify or everywhere we're on every platform and don't forget to set your app to automatic download so whenever i drop a new episode you get it right to your phone and you can enjoy what uh what I've got in store for you. Don't forget to follow us also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Hook Rocks. Please write us a review, write us some uh, kind words. We always do appreciate when uh, we get great feedback from you. So thank you very much for those that have and appreciate you if you are willing to do so. So, We've had some great episodes recently, some good stuff happening. We just had Tyler Bryan on, uh, talking his new album. We had Tuck Smith talking his new single, which is going to be coming out with a, he's going to be coming out with a new album. He's got a, a great story to tell, uh, with his last couple of years and, uh, the roller coaster ride of the music business that kind of got into him and, and, uh, some great honest discussion with him on what's been happening and how he kind of persevered through it Tyler Bryant, of course getting back to that he's got his new album coming out on September 9th so it's a really kind of a, a throwback to his blues influences there's some rockers on there too as well but love Tyler's music glad he's got some new stuff out and can't wait for all of you to hear it we also did a live album review as we do every quarter. We reviewed the legendary UFO album, Strangers of the Night. So, here are our perspective on it and what we thought about it as we kind of revisited that record. We celebrated our three year anniversary with Stephen Piercy from Rat. And we also celebrated our 400th episode with the Groove Council. So, three year and 400th episodes, a couple milestones for us. Some new music spotlights as well. Jennifer Benson from Igncent. We had the three sisters from the band The Warning great new rock band as well and plenty other stuff that's in store that uh, just check out wherever you get your podcast, wherever you stream them. Uh, there's a lot for you to choose. Can't believe we've, we've hit 400 episodes. We've got another great one, as I always say for you this evening or whenever you're listening, it's really about the other side of the glass. When you're talking about music, we've had Great artists on, talking about the albums that they've put out, the the creative process, putting it all together, writing music, putting together the album, going out on tour, all that stuff. But now we're going to take a look behind the scenes and talk to a producer that has... Produced one of my favorite albums, if not, in my opinion, the best album of 2022, and that is Goodbye June, See Where the Night Goes. Tremendous album, came out in February, still resonates, still connects with me, love everything about it. And we're going to be talking with Paul Moke, who had his hand in that album. What's going on, Paul? How are you?
0: Hey, man. Thanks for having me.
2: Hey, man, thank you for doing this. This is a great honor to have you on and kind of talk about some things we don't normally talk about. We do talk about the music business a lot, but more on like the algorithms and the streaming services and the lack of payout and all that kind of fun stuff. Well, not really fun stuff, but all the all the stuff that people should know, music fans should know, kind of where and how these bands are surviving these days. But this is a little, yeah, for sure. This is really about the creative process and how you got involved in it, and kind of how you work with these artists.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, it's an honor to be here, and I get to talk to you today. really cool.
2: We always start out the same way every time we have a first-time guest on the podcast, and that is really what the show is all about. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you?
0: Oh man, uh, well, there've been a billion throughout my career, but the the very first uh, kind of moment that music grabbed me, besides listening as a kid, you know, my 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 parents uh, listened to good music. My dad loved the Beatles and the Stones, and he's of that generation, so we always had good music playing but funny story uh, i actually won a guitar off the radio when i was a kid and that's how it all started you were telling me before we got on about buying your son a guitar uh yeah this was in the 90s so do you remember the yellow pages
2: mm-hmm. and then the,
0: there was there was a competitor called the real yellow pages that came along and i think they were it was categorized in a different way and it was supposed to be faster and And so the, the rock radio station in my town, uh, I grew up in Mississippi, they, uh, they had a contest to show how fast the new yellow pages were. So if you called in you were number nine, let's say, they would say, all right, look up, uh, Joe's crab shack, you know, or whatever. And if you could find it in under 30 seconds, you win a prize and they were giving away a guitar and I don't know what it was in me. That was like, I'm going to win that guitar, you know? And, uh, so I got on, we had two phone lines at the time. My sister had her own line. So that, you know, that was a very nineties thing. Uh, and I got on her line and my mom got on in the kitchen and my mom was the ninth caller and she looked it up and I won a PV predator, which was like a strap copy. And I remember coming home and, uh, my dad played a little guitar and he taught me a couple of chords. And the first thing I did was pull out my parents' vinyl of Jimi Hendrix uh, playing the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock and thinking, well, I'm going to learn that, which was like the worst place to start. (laughs) And uh, it hooked me, man. Uh, That was probably the most definitive moment. Um, But in terms of, uh, you know, the the switch that I want to do this for the rest of my life uh, I think probably happened uh, I was thinking about moving to Nashville because I was in bands and uh, you know had developed a, a pretty voracious appetite for guitar and and my dad was like why don't we go up to Nashville and spend a weekend and see how it is and uh, we came up here and a buddy of mine had a friend who had a friend who had a friend that worked for a merchandising company who called i went to go visit them uh because they made t-shirts for all the artists and uh and he said hey we have two free tickets to a show tonight at starwood amphitheater do you and your dad want to go because no one here wants to go we we're like yeah and it was the wallflowers and the counting crows when they were both huge you know like uh this would have been like 97 or 98 and we went and it was just such a uh, an unbelievably
2: uh,
0: cosmic moment of like I need to move here this is where people are, are really doing things and and that really was when I made the decision to move up about maybe two months after that and uh and the first show I saw at that same spot uh, when I was here, like after I'd moved was Metallica and that was life changing too. It's like totally confirming that I was in the right spot, you know? Uh, And I've had a hundred of those since then, you know, it's what keeps me in the game. I think.
2: Yeah. I mean, rock and roll really is the gift that keeps on giving, you know, I mean, you know, it's always uh, about inspiration. It's always about, seeing a show that makes the, you know, the hair on your neck stand up, you know, it's yeah. just that, that energy, that synergy. When you look back and with the guitar and, and moving to Nashville, you mentioned that you went to the show with your dad yeah. and you mentioned that your mom was on the phone, you know, helping you win this guitar. Yeah. How much did it mean to you that your parents were supportive in you pursuing what you wanted to, what you wanted to do?
0: it means everything, man. It still means everything because you know this lifestyle there's no like manual or roadmap or college you know to to figure out a life in the arts and uh, what I always say is it's high highs and low lows you know and, and my parents uh, my whole family runs a mom and pop operated business in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, where I grew up, and and so to be this black sheep that wants to go figure out this whole different way of life, uh, to have them be supportive of that means everything, man. Um, it, it really ha- it helps in the hard times to know that people believe in you, and uh, you know I think they I think my dad especially is kind of living a little vicariously through me getting to do rock and roll for a living and and uh, get out and see the world from a different point
2: of view you know
0: it's it's very cool
2: and you ended up at uh beaumont university there in nashville
0: yeah that was like the uh the trojan horse for getting me to nashville because my dad really wanted me to get a business degree so i'd have something to fall back on you know and I had no intention of doing anything but getting up here and trying to be in bands, you know, but that was our big compromise. So I started going to school and, and, uh, I did really well at the beginning when I had no friends and, you know, didn't know anybody. And then as I started to join in bands and start playing out and kind of really going hard after music, you know, the grades just inevitably went down (laughs) and, uh, And, uh, you know, I started touring with, with different bands. And then, uh, there was one big band that offered me the chance to, to go on a tour. And there was no way I was going to be able to do it and school. So I ended up dropping out and told myself it would be for that semester. And then, you know, here we are 20 something years later. Uh, but you know, it was the right thing for me because it really was a safe spot to land in a new town where I didn't know anybody. Uh, there's a couple of people that I would, you know, was in my freshman class that I still work with. Uh, and I've gone back and taught classes at Belmont, which is really funny because, you know, I'm a dropout. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, it was, everybody has their path of how they get, get here. And that was mine. It was a good experience.
2: Yeah, I've talked to my son who I mentioned to you before about doing the music theory camp next year at Belmont. Yeah. So we're going to be looking into that. He's interested in in, in doing that because he's going to be a senior this year. We're looking at schools and he keeps talking about schools that are close to Nashville. You know, that's where yeah. he you know kind of wants to go. And I'm, yeah, you know, I'm like, all right. You know, and, I, and I've kind of told him the same thing. Dude, you get a business degree. He's got something to fall back on you know, and then once you get your degree, you know, go and, and, and do what you need to do, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So well, you know, those it, conversations too.
0: <laughs> Yeah. I think, you know, I've got kids now and I think that if they were to tell me that they wanted to pursue a career in any kind of art form, it's just unfortunate that that's stuff that, that you can't really teach. I mean, you can teach methodology and, and, uh, theory and stuff like that, but what i really needed was someone to tell me how to do my taxes you know and like i'm a self-employed business basically so like any advice in that kind of realm would have been greatly appreciated or just how to how to you know uh navigate the ups and downs of the music business it's kind of one of those things that uh you know like the school of hard knocks you just have to go through it and and figure out your path you know That being said, to have a a semester or two where, uh, you know, I had a schedule and a place to stay in the dorm and all that kind of stuff, uh, it was the right transition for me. Um, Yeah, I'd I'd probably do it the same if I had to do it over again. Although Nashville is a different place than when I moved here. How so? Uh, it's just grown a lot in the last 20 years, and especially in the last 10 years, and real estate shot through the roof. I feel bad for musicians that try to, to move here now because uh, the cost of living is just so much higher. And it also seems like uh, it was a pretty small, tight-knit music community with the same kind of everybody's playing at the same venues and uh, you'd have your band open up for somebody else's band. And the next week, you know, it'd be the opposite. And uh, Nashville's grown so much that it's kind of, it's not as small town as it used to be, I guess. Um, But who knows now I sound like an old guy.
2: (laughs) Well, I know there's been a lot of people transitioning from LA to Nashville, especially the rock scene. You know, yeah. when you look at the rock scene, because I do a lot of new music spotlights on this show and the amount of bands that are in Nashville now, and the amount of artists that are in Nashville uh keeps growing year by year, you know? And, and, and I don't know, I don't know if they consider the cost of living more, you know, coming out of LA, they probably yeah. think it's, if this is a break, but, you know, to see that rock scene kind of growing and growing, you know, is cool, but, you know i was just out there for uh creatures fest in Mo- on memorial day weekend it was like this kiss festival vinnie vincent was making his return and ace freely was there it was it was cool and i hadn't been out to nashville probably 8 years and i was like man where did all this traffic come from like yeah. i did not expect like all this all this traffic and i don't think the the infrastructure has really kept up with the population growth yet
0: Exactly. Um, and I
2: think that's coming eventually. It has to come eventually. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it has gone through just, I mean, I haven't even really experienced, I don't live there, but just the amount of people in the bands that are out there in the rock you know, community, you know, it used to be just thought of as a country in Western town yeah. um, and it's kind of slowly evolving into a, a, a big rock crowd. So uh, yeah, I totally get what you're saying too.
0: And I am thankful for that because I, I, I didn't grow up on country. I didn't really know, you know, Nashville is just the closest city to where I grew up that had some kind of music business, but I've always been a rock guy, you know. Uh, my favorites, I'm the age of Guns N' Roses and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and uh, the whole Seattle scene. So that that's like, those are the songs I was learning when I was learning guitar, you know. Uh, so, you know, even though, the rock community here is smaller than the, the country music. There's a lot of great talent. You know, you mentioned Tyler Bryant. I've worked with him a ton, wrote songs on his first record. And, and uh, Caleb and his band uh, works with me over here all the time. Uh, so it's cool. You know, rock people kind of find each other, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, cause even though it grows, it is still a small, big city, you know? And yeah. in, you know, the community you know, is growing, but as I've learned, the, the music community, although it's huge, it still has a very small feel to it. You know, a lot of everybody knows each other. Everybody, um, you know, works his work with each other or knows this guy. Everybody's kind of connected somehow. Yeah, that's true. It is true. So, how did you get from playing on stage, you know, being in bands to into working behind the glass, working on production, engineering in that aspect of music?
0: Yeah, well, I think it started from I always wanted to be in a band. And and I went through years of being in bands here when I first moved, getting record deals, losing record deals, that whole thing, and not really finding something that kind of stuck. And uh, I started getting calls to play for other artists as a side guy, which is a totally different thing than being in a band, you know? And uh, at first it was awesome because it was like, oh wait, I'm getting paid to play guitar <laughs> for you. That's cool. And uh, and then the higher I, I kind of climbed up on the, the Sideman uh, chain, the better touring there was, you know, getting your own hotel room, that kind of thing. Uh, but it was the, the more removed from any kind of creative process of, of the things I missed about being in a band, really having an input on, on the sound and the vibe and uh, the whole thing. And, and I started doing sessions on guitar uh, as, you know, just a natural evolution from being a touring musician. And I just fell in love with the studio and I realized like, man, I love being in the room when, when the magic happens, you know, and, uh, like you were saying er earlier, uh, like that moment when you're watching a show and, uh, the band is on such a level that the, the hair on the back of your neck stands up that, uh, that feeling in the studio is just, it's a, it's a drug, you know? And, uh, and so the more sessions I was doing, the more getting involved in records and writing. It just kind of was a natural evolution to where uh I started recording friends of mine on a uh I had a I started out with the Yamaha MT four X four track analog tape machine and moved from there to a uh a digital hard disk recorder, moved from that into an early version of uh Pro Tools with a, a laptop and really started in a bedroom and just piece by piece as I was doing sessions, playing live, writing, recording my friends, just it kind of all kind of kept evolving. And, uh, and it really changed when I bought a little house in, uh, 2004 and kind of turned the whole thing into a studio. And, uh, And then, uh, when I finally had a a place set up where people could actually come and work, that's when it really kind of snowballed and I was still touring during this time, I kind of got off the road about 2007 ish, 2008 to really pursue, uh, how far can I take this studio thing? And then, uh, just buried myself in the studio from that time until COVID, you know? And, uh, coming out of COVID, uh, had a buddy of mine who's another session player call and say, would you ever want to go on the road again? I said, nah, he said, what if it was Ann Wilson from heart? And I was like, okay. So I've been out, uh, you know, I've been spent half the year this year, uh, in the studio and half the year out playing with her. And, uh, I've realized at this point in my life that I need both because that interaction that you have with the audience in a real-time moment, it doesn't happen in the studio like that, you know, and they feed off of each other in a really cool way, so uh, it's a new chapter in my life to be back out touring, you know, but it it feels right for now.
2: When you bought that house and you kind of turned it into a a studio you know yeah. who were some of the acts that you were you were having you know working with back then
0: it was it was more up and coming acts that uh you know uh, were coming out of bands that you know that i was kind of in the scene with at the time but there was a couple that kind of put me on like there were two records that really kind of snowballed for me here in nashville one was a guy named matt Carney uh he's like a big uh indie pop artist I songwriter guy uh, yeah yeah and uh we made a record uh called Nothing Left to Lose that did really well for him and kind of really yeah yeah i it kind of put me on the map with with some of the business side of Nashville and then the other was there's a, a he's mostly a songwriter now uh but an artist named Trent Dabs uh who's here. And the only reason I was connected with him was he was also from Mississippi and his mom called my mom said, my son's moving up to Nashville. Uh, and so I, you know, my mom was like, "Will you meet with this guy and, and, uh, just small town Mississippi stuff. And we met and we really hit it off and we ended up uh, recording a lot over the next maybe two years. And then we, he did a EP with me that really I uh, didn't do anything outside of Nashville, but it, a lot of a lot of artists here loved that EP, and so both of those kind of happened at the same time, and they they just started leading to more work. And uh, you know, it's still word of mouth and someone hearing something that they think is cool and trying to figure out who did it. You know, um, there's no real business other than for me. I mean, I'm sure other people have a way of doing it, but for me, it's just like, I hope the music I make continues to bring in more people that want to make music, you know, but those are the first two. And that was like way back, uh, 2007, eight ish at first, first couple of years in that house.
2: You mentioned, as we talked about your move to Nashville and being on stage and playing in these bands and finding other you know, musicians and, and then going and becoming a, you know, kind of a hired gun, more or less. Yeah. And then going into recording and producing and and kind of starting out that way. You know, when you think of that, those first moments in Nashville and, and, and playing live, you know, whatever club or whatever bar that you were playing in Nashville, and then also starting out producing, like, what were the kind of the... So what's the mindset difference with that?
0: Yeah. Well, it, it's, two, it's two different sides of the same coin, I believe. But I think for me, what it really was about is to I'm, I'm interested in all of it. Um, anything that has to do with the creative process. And so, uh, you know, at this point in my life, as painful as it was that none of my bands worked out, I think it worked out for the best for me in the long run, because I don't think I would have been satisfied just being the guitar player in a band. Uh, there's too much out there in terms of the studio and live to, to learn about and to pursue that. I feel like I'm still learning at this point in my career, you know, 25 years in. So for me, the mindset, Besides, like, do I have enough money to eat and pay the bills? (laughs) The mindset is like, how do I keep myself in a place where this is still fun and I'm still curious about what's out there? You know? And when, when you say being in a band, being a hired gun, moving into the studio, each of those phases was kind of like, um, a big creative shift right and and with that comes uh an element of uncertainty and danger lack of a uh you know safety net so to speak and i, I kind of now at this point in my career realized that in order to stay relevant creatively you kind of have to shake up the game every couple of years you know uh I think of um producers like Daniel M. Wah or who did like Peter Gabriel and U2 and um real experimental music. And then, uh, then Willie Nelson, you know, just constantly trying to push the envelope Um or a guy like Rick Rubin, you know, you see him work with everyone from run DMC to the Dixie chicks to flair, you know, and for me, it's just been a constant uh, curiosity, man. Like, why does this record sound this way, and could I ever make a record that sounds that way? You know, you, we got together because of Goodbye Gin. Um, that that has been a fantastic evolution of helping three guys that I've come to love so much uh, find themselves through the course of a couple of records and. And having conversations about what we like about this this type of music or this, and and really trying to create something that we feel like we all passionately feel is is great, you know. And it took a long time to get to where they're at now, and I think part of that is just uh, the curiosity part of it that I keep talking about, you know. Um, you'll be I'm curious to see what's next for them you know because this was the record I feel like we've been trying to make for 10 years
2: <laughs> well I remember when Tyler and I and I talked while I think it was just about completed and he's like I can't wait for you to hear this album it's it's just it's kind of just plugging in and playing and it's you know it's and the energy on the album too." Um, their other albums have energy, but I think the energy from the listener standpoint that I hear is like coming out of a pandemic, coming out of all the stuff. It was like, man, this is the right record to hear coming coming out of all this stuff, you know. And, oh, and it was probably yeah. recorded during the pandemic, but you know, when you hear their story, um, which is such a a, a touching and unique story that they have as a band. And, and, you know, having all this momentum before the pandemic and like most artists and bands having that all go away just because of the circumstances, you know, when you're in the studio with them and you're recreating and you got to push them and you got to do all this stuff, you you know, how do you find the right sequence of words? How do you find the right moments? How do you connect with that energy? With the band,
0: yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you find it by doing it wrong for years and years and years. You know, uh, now it, it is about being. I'm a very like uh, probably in, intuitive person towards reading the temperature of the room, um, where where the struggle is, and kind of being real patient with the process. Um, you know with those guys the or actually with with any band that i'm in the studio with i never want them to feel like i'm this authoritative dictator and they have to get it right or you know it's my way or the highway there there are some great records that have been made that way but i i kind of have always viewed it as i want I want to be an ally of the band and a friend and so the main element that i'm looking for to as a foundation to build off of is trust the band has to feel like i'm in their corner and that the decisions i'm making even if we disagree on those decisions that it's in their best interest or what i believe is their best interest and i feel like establishing that with, with the guys in Goodbye June. Um, it, it's an interesting story because the first, first time we ever wrote together way back in 2013 was this song called Daisy, the very first time we ever wrote, and that was a big hit for them that kind of got them signed, started their whole chapter with Interscope. And, uh, and then the course of making that first record, Magic Valley was really us learning how to trust each other, you know? and uh that's not a great way to start because we had so much pressure from the label and uh a and r and all that but we really kind of found each other in that time and then uh when the opportunity came up to do this new record that trust made it so much easier to really push the envelope musically and sonically um You know, like, for example, Tyler, and he'd probably murder me for saying this, but I call him the wild man because he can play the most amazing stuff if he turns his brain off and just plays, right? And so all those solos are just him getting out there in the ether and just kind of losing himself in the guitar, which is fantastic. But then I'd be like, dude, that was sick. Do that again, but change this. And he couldn't you couldn't do that if you paid him a million dollars because because he wasn't he was just out there on the edge, you know, and uh, so learning how that kind of like how he works as a guitar player and then being able to kind of grab the best out of that and also challenge him like, dude, it would be awesome if you could do this and then be able to recreate it a second time, you know, and kind of giving him homework to go home and, and work with like all right, go study this solo and come back and let's let's do it for real tomorrow. You know, um, and then and you know with Landon the the singer, he's really come such a long way. He's always had a killer voice, but uh, coming up with a real angle for what he's trying to say, and actually all three of them are great writers. Um, but you know it's just stuff that takes time and patience and. And really believing in the long mission of the band. So it's really walking arm in arm with the artist over a pretty long period of time, which I'm thankful for because we have this record now, you know.
2: You talk about trust and you talk about the challenge after you made the song Daisy. When you are establishing that with an artist, a band, mm-hmm. is it, the trust that exists before you go in and start creating with them, or is it normally like, you know, we're going to do this record we're in. And because I mean, artists in general, just the nature of the beast are very protective of their stuff, right? They're creative, you know, they're what they created. Like, you know, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears that goes through a lot of stuff. And then now you're giving it to someone like you, who's now going to, Make it sound like they want it to sound, or make it sound how it should sound, whatever the case is.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know, I imagine when you get into a studio, that there's it is like a roller coaster ride, right? There's a lot of happy yeah. moments, like you're creating with them. You're you become you become part of the band for for that process, and then there's moments where you're like. You know, someone's really kind of high on a moment, in a song or a, a, a riff or a, a lyric or how it's, you know, presented You're like, no, I think it should be done that way. And that's a that's a really you talk about Tyler being out on, on the edge. You know, that's almost like the whole process being out on the edge at some point. You know, I mean, yeah. that, that can be a scary place for everybody involved. Absolutely. And, you know, how does how do you kind of, you know, keep that all. Keep that synergy going, keep that all moving forward.
0: Well, one one of the tricks or you know, ways that I can go about doing that is to really kind of uh, not try to get bogged down in a certain area. And you can feel the, the energy in the room shift when let's say let's say you have a band and, and we're trying to track a song and it's apparent that the the drums aren't special right but we can't figure out we changed the tempo we've tried a different drum kit we just can't figure out how to crack the code on why this isn't uh feeling great for everybody right instead of just pounding that into the ground until we figure it out i'll i'll shift gears like well guess what we we tracked this other song the other day and it needs a solo. Let's work on that for a while and just try to keep it where the momentum's moving forward, no matter what you're, what part of the process you're in. And, uh, part of that is easier for me to do because we're working in my studio. So we're not like beholden to the clock of like, we got to get all this done before, you know, 10, or they're going to charge us again. Uh, I'm able to kind of bounce around as we're working on stuff. Uh, and that's generally the best way to keep it from getting um, bogged down or, or contentious. And sometimes it's just like, hey, guess what? We all need to go home and take a break and come back tomorrow and try this again. You know, uh, getting away from it is a great thing. Like sometimes when you get in the studio, you get to tunnel vision and kind of lose sight of the big picture. And so stepping away is another thing um, and just trying to really stay positive and and really drive home the message that like, hey, we're going to figure this out and let's just try to have fun while we're doing it, you know, because if if we're not, what's the point in being here? You know, and some days are hard, but uh, it's a constant. Check-in process, I guess, with the artist. And lastly, eliminating anyone from the room that doesn't need to be here. That's a big one. Because, uh, I've noticed the vibe and the momentum go straight out the window when the A&R guy shows up or the manager, uh, or the booking agent or the girlfriend, you know, um, I usually try to set a time and place where those can happen, but but really kind of keep this a sacred space for creating with just the people that need to be there, you know?
2: I, I touch on that a lot on the show, especially with new bands coming up, you know, with – because things are so easily accessible now, right? I mean, anyone can put a song on a streaming service. Anybody – you know, the technology has – has made things great where you can hear artists that you normally wouldn't hear. I always use the example, me growing up in the eighties and early nineties that, you know, a band from New York that was playing local clubs in New York would never be heard in Chicago. Right. Right. Just wasn't the way it was. So with the, you know, you know, invention of all these streaming services and all this technology, you're able to like hear bands in New York. You're able to hear bands in Sweden and all over the place, which is, fantastic it's awesome the accessibility is great but there's also a curse with that too there's a lot of people putting music out that shouldn't be putting music out right agreed <laughs> and you know i i always remember that quote of daily roth who said van halen played thousands of hours in the clubs before they even went in and recorded a demo you know yeah. and just like you physically work out you got to work out a song you got to work out what what it all is and a lot of artists just don't seem to, new artists, I should say, don't understand that. Yeah. And like you just said, people in the room, you need people in the room that tell you that that doesn't sound right. This can sound right. bad. You don't want your mom and your girlfriend in the room because they're going to tell you it sounds great. Exactly. And in reality, it doesn't. And, you know, you being, what you doing what you do and knowing that that element is out there, Right. And knowing there's a lot of emerging artists that you know are, are chasing a record deal, which in my opinion, I don't know why people still chase that. You can you yeah. know you don't need it anymore. Um, it's just from what I've heard, it's just a land of heartache and heartbreak. Um, it is. Um, but how do you like you like how do you go over a uh, you know. A subject like that because, you know, there are artists in a band that need that girlfriend there to have their ego stroked and to have that comfort. And now you're taking that out of the, the room. Yeah. You know, how, how do those conversations go?
0: I just usually always say, man, there's a time and place for everything, and we got to work, and I, I need you focused. And, you know, so let's set a time for whoever it is to come by. But, uh, Let's be cool about, you know, what we're here to do, which is to get a job done. And most people are pretty awesome about that, you know? And, you know, there's some bands that can have distraction around and it's no big deal. Um, Again, it goes back to just kind of reading the temperature of the room and knowing uh, when, when it should be stripped down to the core elements. And most people, when they're singing vocals, really don't want anybody that, that doesn't need to be there around, you know, cause you're really bearing your soul there. And, and I also, I believe in, in trying to create a space where people feel free to take chances, knowing that if they fail, it's a safe space because, you know, but much like you said, like anybody can put music out, right? There's, you know, youtube video after youtube video after youtube video of guys that can play perfectly right but it doesn't do anything for me because they're not they're not out there on the edge like i was saying with tyler you know and vocally same thing you could you could have the the chops of celine dion but if you if there's no emotion in it and no uh uh none of your soul in it then it's gonna fall flat And so most of the time when you're in the studio, no matter what you're working on, really trying to, to get people to kind of turn their brain off and, and sing or play from the heart and let their spirit kind of be a part of the song is really, that's the stuff that people connect with, you know? And so sometimes it it takes removing people to get that to happen, you know? Or just even having a conversation of like, look, man, this, I, I need, I need you to really bare your soul in this, this vocal. What do we have to do to make that happen? You know, I mean, turn the lights off, you know, get everybody out of here. Uh, let's talk about why you wrote these lyrics, you know, what, what was your mind like when this song came? to to fruition because that's the spot we need to be in so that when you sing it i I believe it you know and i feel it and uh, it's different with every artist man it's really different with every artist
2: as we talked about the the goodbye june album see where the night goes and how raw sounding it is and how you know it's basically plugging in and playing is that really what you want to capture with the artists you work with is it does it differ? Are you, are you the one that kind of leads that direction when people come to you and want to record, and they say, "Paul, you know, what can you do for us?" or "What's your approach with this music?"
0: Yeah, uh, it's different every time. I, it, it is a conversation between me and the artist. Sometimes, sometimes we know before we even record the first note, like what our ultimate goal is. But uh, for for example, with Goodbye Jin you know in in the previous years of them trying to find themselves uh we tried all different kinds of stuff like if you go listen to magic valley that first record it's a lot more experimental than see where the night goes and in my opinion some of it was good some of it we missed the mark on on what they would become but you learn from all that and then when we got ready to make this record we sat down and had real conversations about like, what are the strongest attributes of this band? Tyler's vocal. I mean, uh, Landon's vocal, Tyler's guitar playing and Brandon's riff writing, right? And so let's not worry about being like white stripes cool or, or, you know, lo-fi or anything. Let's make wh- another question was what kind of shows do you want to play that we'll play big shows you know let's get like a acdc stripped rock raw record like the ones that we love and and so we set hard rules like we weren't going to overdub a lot of guitars we we're going to we we're going to work harder on making each part shine so that we didn't just layer a bunch of stuff right and we committed to recording to two-inch tape to keep it down to less than 24 tracks per song. And uh, so we recorded to two-inch and then we mixed it down to a half-inch tape, just like all my favorite, you know, like Back in Black was made, you know, or uh, Appetite for Destruction. And and probably our biggest rule was, how can we make this as big as it can possibly be without just adding stuff on top but making each part shine and uh that was the big focus so we we worked a lot on their individual guitar tones so that you know that the left side's Brandon and the right side's Tyler and uh and you know once we found those sounds this combination of amps that was like well that's going to be it for the record you know and uh that's that was unique and special for this project on another project it might be completely a different approach you know um but in the case of of goodbye june it was like we kind of got to this point where everybody knew exactly what we needed to do right we kind of all realized that at the same time i think and i feel like everybody was willing to put in the work to, because it's not easy to make records that way, you know, you can't just like go into Pro Tools and shift something to the left, you know, to get it in time or whatever. It was like really working with the guys to, to get something that had that space around it, like the great rock records that we love. And I'm really proud of it, man. I'm really proud of them because they put in a lot of hard work to make that happen.
2: You mentioned pro tunes and, you know, we live in a world that pop music today is way overproduced and a lot of music is way overproduced because of, you know, the, the accessibility to technology. Again, it gives you the ability to do things, but then you can go crazy with it. And it just doesn't even sound like music, you know, for you and, you know, being in Nashville now for, for as long as you have, And kind of seeing the evolution of how music is produced and how music is created. How do you, how do you navigate through all that technology and, and really kind of get bare bones and kind of really get to the heart of the music and and hear the music? Because a lot of people rely on that auto tune. They rely on these other, you know, uh, pro tools to, to really, you know, formulate the music they can't match it when it's live. That's a whole different topic. But, but how do you like, you still have that old school mentality with like this new wave of new technology that is really making music more and more artificial as each day goes by.
0: Yeah. Well, fortunately I feel like for me, I've always been more interested in the, uh, the out of the box part of music, the the interaction between musicians on the floor, and the more organic side, I guess, of of what happens when you're when you're making a record where people are play, performing together, and the I, I, I what I say all the time is I didn't get into this to, to be staring at a computer screen and have an artist staring at the back of my head, you know, while I mouse click their record away it's just not interesting to me um i think i just kind of dug my heels in the ground about like man i've studied the records that i grew up loving and i don't want to be a a luddite by any means i'm going to learn how to use all the new technology and everything but i'm going to keep my heart focused on what I know works, which is people uh, being honest and playing together and trying to find that that wave where you hit the wave and you kind of lose yourself in the song. And when you get done with it and you listen back, you're like, I can't believe we did that, you know? And so I guess it, it was at, at, as production, uh, values change and and people started working more in the box i've just kind of been more true to who i am which is more of an out of the box kind of classic definition of a record producer just trying to get the performance right uh kind of the best way to say it maybe is right now we're in this age of just get it in the computer and then we can make it whatever we need it to be you know like i got this guitar part We'll get it in and then we can decide which amp that it's gonna go through and uh if it's gonna have reverb or not on it. Um I wanna do all that before we even get to the computer because then we're committing to something that we all feel like is great. And uh, not that there's anything wrong with modern production technique, but I do feel like at the end of the day people can hear the difference between Uh, A group of musicians finding that wave or someone creating a track in the box, you know, and I will always want to be in the more collaborative uh, creative zone where, you know, let's say you wrote a song and you were like, how would you hear this? I could tell you if I was going to make the song all by myself, what it would sound like. But if I hired a couple of friends to come over and we all worked on it together, it's the sum of all of our personalities imparting on this piece of music. And to me, that's so much more interesting than what I could come up with on my own, you know? And it happens all the time in the studio, man, where I thought, you know, cause usually as a producer, I'll live with work tapes. And then if it's a a solo artist, the session players we hire might not have heard the song until we we're actually in the studio that day and to hear it come alive in a way that's different than what I'd envisioned in my mind is such a beautiful process you know and i just think back on some of my favorite records there's a distinct personality like let's take uh let's take appetite you know that steven adler playing the drums It sounds like him, and when they when they switch drummers for Use Your Illusion One and Two, it doesn't sound the same because it's a different person. And the fact that uh, you know the way Lars plays the drums, you immediately know it's Metallica.
1: Uh,
0: And and if they had a different drummer, it wouldn't be Metallica. You know, having such a strong sonic imprint of your personality—what's more beautiful than that? You know, and I think that's one of the things that's missing with in the in the box production is like the only thing that differentiates this song from the, the other song is who's singing the vocal, you know? And, but that's been plaguing pop music forever, you know?
2: (laughs) But it's, but it's starting to, you know, it's starting to creep into other areas too. I mean, Capitol records signed an AI rapper, you know, and they, they, they canceled the contract because of the pushback for, for right. a variety of reasons but i was just stunned that that even occurred like this was even being considered you know like what what where how did we get here you know and right. because like you i'm part of that older generation where man you know when you hear the mistakes live that's yeah. part of the experience man that's part of like you know the greatness of a live performance you know hearing them flub yeah. a note or whatever, that kind of adds a whole new element to that specific concert, right? Or them improvising something that sounds totally badass. And, you know, now, you know, again, totally different topic, but, you know, you hear the tracks live and you hear all the stuff and the AI being signed and pop music. And now, you know, even some of that stuff is starting to creep into rock and roll. I still believe that there will always be a place for authenticity, right? Yeah. I, 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 won't, I never think, or I will never think, that that's ever completely going to go away. Yeah. But what scares me is the generation that comes after will they still feel that same way because of yeah. what's, what they're listening to and what music is becoming?
0: I think, I think they will, man. I'm hopeful for that because you said it, that you said there will always be a place for authenticity. I think that place might not be in the major label record system the way it was when when we were growing up, you know? But I think about all the millions and millions of kids that are watching videos from last weekend with the Foo Fighters celebrating Taylor's life and how big of a, a moment that was. There's no way that there's kids out there that are seeing that and not being turned on to that and saying, "Man, I want I want to be in a band like that." You know, uh, they might not like that music as much as some TikTok artists that they follow right now, but I, I still think that uh, name me a TikTok artist that could sell out Wembley Stadium like that. You know, and you look at all the biggest tours right now. It's like Guns and Roses and uh, Motley Crue and Poison and and sure it's to an older crowd but i think that that experience of seeing someone in a live setting where it's they're not just performing for you it's, it's you participating in a, an exchange you know and that's the, that's the thing that i think will never die and so maybe it doesn't live in like the Interscope, Sony, universal system. Uh, it might be harder to find moving forward, but I think it will always be there, you know, and I, I think case in point, probably 75%, I would say, of the records that I make are outside the major label systems, and then 25% is. I think that's evidence right there. Of if, if the way I'm trying to make records is the way we're talking about, it's existing right now, outside of the major label format, which is fine. You know, um, I just hope that people like I was, I was really excited that you reached out because it means there's somebody who's heard that Goodbye June record and likes it, you know, and for them, I think getting out in front of people and turning on fans one performance at a time it's it's grueling but it's tried and true and it works and i think they're they're out there doing that right now you know
2: yeah and, i think back to that that moment when i took my son to his first concert it was butch walker oh and, cool yeah and uh, he was like he was five and i had bought him like a year earlier this toy guitar it wasn't like it had strings and everything but it was a toys rs so it was like a pre-play guitar so we get back from bushwalker and he goes in his room and he grabs the guitar which he had not touched since i bought it for him i think he maybe picked yeah. it up looked at it like this is too complicated and forget it and he was sitting on his bed trying to like play and i go hey what are you doing he's like he's like dad i want to play guitar you yeah. know like direct correlation to what he just saw which was a beautiful moment you know like wow that's like, so cool It connected with them. You know, so yeah, I think that that has that ability because one thing that authentic music has that the overproducer or the whatever you want to call it, the over technology music or whatever, the authentic stuff will always inspire. Yeah. Will always grab that kid, will always, you know, Give, give a kid a sense of wonder. You know, I think of that that Van Halen album debut. I remember being a kid listening to eruption going, what the hell is going on? Like, yeah. what is this? It's that sense of wonder. Like, you're trying to figure out, like, what is, is, is this a guitar? What, it sounds like a spaceship. What is happening? Yeah. And I think that will always grab you more than something that the beat sounds just like every other song. It's auto-tuned. It's not... It's, it, it just doesn't sound, you know, real. And, um, I, I, I firmly believe that I I, I really yeah.
0: do. Well, you know, and two, rock music, uh, it, it got into a zone where it was doing what pop music is doing now, where everything was overproduced and you couldn't tell a song one from the other except for the singer. And it was all about the music video. So we've been here before. I think the thing is like you said authenticity um maybe the the hardest struggle right now is there's just so much content coming at you that it's hard for a band like goodbye june to 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 find their way through all the noise you know and and there's not even just bad music you also Music is now competing with social media and you know YouTube and everything else that's taking attention away from someone just sitting down and enjoying a piece of music. You know, uh, it's a complicated world out there for an artist these days, especially. Man, my heart—I have a special place in my heart for solo female artists because, like, how to break your thing online is that's such a long. Long road these days, you know, and trying to stay authentic to who you are is tough when you're being asked to, to, you know, sing your song in your car on TikTok or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever it is that people are doing these days to try to gain attention.
2: As far as producing goes, who who are your influences in 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 producing?
0: Man, probably number one is probably Brendan O'Brien. Uh, you know, he he did uh, almost uh, a fair amount of Black Crows, uh, but most all of Pearl Jam's records. I think, I think he, I don't think he was on ten. I think he joined up with the band after that up until i think their newest release um audio slave uh he's just a great rock producer um and if you go look him up his credits are two miles long but i love that he's kind of been behind the scenes uh just making great records for the last 25 years and I think I connect with him a lot because of the way his drums sit in a mix. It's just really powerful. Um, So he's a big one. Rick Rubin's a big one. I mean, that guy's undeniable. Um, You know, from the Chili Peppers. uh, I mean, honestly, so many great records that he's been a part of. I love the Johnny Cash stuff that he did at the end of Johnny's life. Um let's see who else oh uh Rob Cavallo who signed Green Day did Dookie American Idiot those I mean those records sound insane to me um he also did My Chemical Romance uh Black Parade which is an amazing sounding record um I love Daniel Lenoir, he's in a different category. But I just love how experimental and he he just I don't I what uh I can't remember which side of the brain. Left brain is one and right brain's the other. Like uh which one's the creative? creative and
2: analytic. I think it's yeah. Uh I think it's the left side is your creative, I think. I don't but know. he
0: he'd he'd be out there all the way on the left, you know. And uh he has been a big influence. Honestly, it's it's more the sonics of those records than necessarily um oh Eric Valentine would be another. Uh he did Queens of Stone Age and um that first third eye blind record, which sounds huge. Uh and I really like him a lot because he's he's made a big presence online like kind of going back and sharing a lot about his journey and how he's done things and um really giving back to people like me that are you know curious about how those records were made um yeah so that'd be a short list but you know there's other genres too that um that have impacted me just as much as as rock uh it really I just love music, man.
2: Still. <laughs> well, you're also, you you also collect a lot of gear too, and you can see some of it yeah. in the background as, as we talk here. You know, yeah. you know, how did you, you start to assemble this collection that you yeah. have?
0: Well, I, I mean, it's been piece by piece, man. It started, when I first started touring, you know, I would go in pawn shops on the road and, I've always just been, I love music stores. I worked in a music, actually, the store that gave me the guitar that I went off the radio, I ended up getting a job there the last couple of years I was in high school. And so I've just always been fascinated with the tools of how records get made. And and it started out just trying to collect guitars, just like, man, it'd be great to have a strat, you know, a, a cool strat it'd be great to have a guitar with humbuckers, you know, uh, and then you'd hear, I'd hear a song and wonder what it was and find out, Oh, it was this that they used and, and just always been kind of chasing it and, uh, I selling stuff as I go. And, and, you know, I guess it, this collection now just shows how long I've been in the game, you know, but it all gets used. It's all, you know, tools of, making records.
2: Do you ever have that moment when you're going to be working with an artist and you've got some gear and you're like, man, this gear fits perfectly with what they're trying to do.
0: That's my favorite thing in the world, man. Especially when someone's like references, like, you know, an old Beatles song. I'm like, well, actually this is, this is exactly what they used would be a good starting point whether it's a snare drum or a keyboard sound or something like that and i feel like that's part part of my job as a producer is maybe not to have the exact instrument that they need but to know how to get the emotion of what they're trying to to get across you know if an artist says man i, w- I would love it if the guitar was more wet here you know it's like well I think you mean this by wet and grabbing a reverb pedal and you know, is this right? Yeah, that's that's close, you know. But I love that chasing tone. It's a fun part of the job.
2: When you have an artist come in and they wanna, you know they wanna record an album and they've got some demos. And and you're talking with them to see if you guys are a good fit, right? Because that's so important. Absolutely. Is it, do you ever have the thought that, you know, the initial meeting's really intense and there's going to be a lot of, a lot of pressure, not pressure, a lot of tension in the room. Do you, do you embrace stuff like that because out of that tension can become something beautiful or maybe, you know, is, is it, maybe this isn't a good fit type of thing?
0: Yeah. Uh, I've had both experiences, honestly. The way I kind of go about it is kind of looking at three different areas. One, do I musically understand where this artist is wanting to go? Am I into the music? Two, uh, what's the financial situation of this this project? Is this something that I'm doing because I love it and I believe in this person? We're going to try to figure out how to get compensated after? Or is this uh, a, an artist that has a budget? Is there a label involved? You know, whatever. And then third, and this goes to what you're talking about, is how do the artists and I get along? Is, are we on the same page uh, socially? Do, they, do we connect when we're really talking about music? and usually if two out of three of those are positive i'll take the gig and most likely what it is is i understand them musically and we get along great and there's no money you know or very little money involved or or we got to call in favors or whatever Uh, and that's great it always works out in the end um because i believe that if you're if you're truly doing something that you're passionate about and it's the right fit, then it's going to find its way to the light of day. The only time I've ever broken that rule is when the money's good, but the music's not great and the artist and I don't really connect and it's always a disaster. So I, I try not to do that, um, at this point in my career, but you know, there's a difference between tension creating results, versus uh, an artist not being willing to let you into their process or being too overly protective. Um, And sometimes you don't really find that stuff out until you're in the middle of it, you know? But, uh, you know, like a great example would be, there was a, a, a record I did not too long ago. It was just a one song thing. And the artist said, I just want you to know, he's an established artist. He said, I just want you to know, I do all my vocals at home. And I was like, okay, well, tell me about that. And he's like, well, so many records ago, I did this song at home and it it became a hit. So I've always done my vocals at home since then. And for me, it's like vocals are the most important part. I want to get in there and really kind of figure out how to bring this thing to life without, uh, you know, just giving it to you to to go do on your own. And he wouldn't even consider doing vocals with me here. Uh, And that really rubbed me the wrong way. I still took the gig and we got it done. But if I'd been honest with myself in that moment, it probably would have been the right moment to pass because it just, it set a tone of, I don't fully trust you with my art, you know, from that guy. And, you know, those are lessons you learn along the way. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's an interesting, you know, story. I mean, you know, cause like we've talked about kind of one of the continuing topics that we've been discussed is that trust. Right? Yeah. And I know as an art, if I was an artist, you know, if if I still wanted to do things, no matter who the producer was, that means that I'm not really respecting the craft of, of producing. You know, it's kind of like, I don't trust anybody, which you have to overcome if you want to make the music. I, I always like the bands or the artists that are willing to work with a different producer from album to album. Some some will keep you know uh, uh, you know two or three albums the same, and then they want to change it up. I always admire that because you know you know what works with one producer, right? Yeah. Because you've got that relationship, you've got that that history with them with the music, and then to kind of change it up, that means that tells me that you know an artist is trying to evolve in a certain way, is trying to find something different, you know, and, and it's trying to get a different perspective and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, um, right. I, I, I do appreciate when an artist or a band does that. I do too, man.
0: I couldn't agree more. I think that, I think two records is kind of like the first record you're, you're trying to to do the thing and then your second record, you actually accomplish it. And then it's time to move on to a different creative space, you know? uh there's very few examples pearl jam would be one but of bands that have stuck with the same guy throughout their career and it actually worked you know i think that's why you know metallica you know uh did the black album and then load and reload with bob rock and then had to shift after that because at that point it's like if we're going to keep evolving as a band we, we got to change something and we can't, you know, hire a, a member of the band. <laughs> so yeah. the Bob Rock became the sacrificial lamb, you know. <laughs> Plus, I think they accomplished what they set out to do, you know.
2: Yeah. What's really cool, though, is like when a band works with one producer for one or two albums and then does other things with other producers and then like four albums later, they come back. And what I like about that is because they've evolved since they left that, you know, after that second or third album. So they went off and did some other things. So, you know, anytime you work with somebody different, you naturally learn things, you naturally evolve and and that's what you want to accomplish. Yeah. The producer has worked with all these other artists. So when you come back, you know, you, you, you hope, but in most cases it is the producer is a better producer They've learned things, too, about, you know, different sounds and different techniques and different ways to get the, 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 the music out of someone. So when you see that happen, that can be equally as interesting, too, as well. Because now you, you kind of see what the same group is, but just now a different time, you know? Yeah. What has what yeah, what yeah, time done to that group of people?
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of Daniel Lanois, the great example of what you're saying is, you know, he did uh, the Joshua Tree with you too, and they they went off, and uh, it was probably 20 years later they did. Uh, he came back, and they did. Um, what's it called? All you can't leave behind, which was a big comeback record for them at the time. And uh, it's cool. It's cool that things went full circle like that. You know.
2: Yeah. Well, man, this has been a blast. I really enjoyed this yeah. conversation.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, man. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, man, we'll we'll have to do this again. This was really interesting and, and really, you know, a great perspective and learning a lot and kind of just, you know, I, 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 we all know what happens, you know, on stage, but when the studio is where all that stuff is created, so kind of giving a yeah. little bit of perspective and, and how that all works was really interesting.
0: Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much.
2: Everyone, that's Paul Moak. As we talked about, uh, you can you can hear his work on the album that I've been raving about all year, which is that Goodbye June album, See Where the Night Goes, fantastic, uh, fantastic record. Can't say enough about it. You can also check out Paul on his website at Um Learn more about you know his studio, his gear, uh, what he's worked on. Uh, the Ann Wilson stuff is really cool too. I know we didn't get really time to get to it, but um that's stuff too that I eventually I wanna dive into as well. But thanks Next time. Yeah, thanks but I for tuning in everyone. Say, take care of each other. We'll talk no soon. Else to you got the best
1: of me. Up the rest of Me. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer.